This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com apps. Welcome. You're listening to Back Talk Doc, where you'll find answers to some of the most common questions about back pain and spine health. Brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, where providing personalized, highly skilled, and compassionate spine care has been our specialty for over 75 years. And now, it's time to understand the cause of back pain and learn about options to get you back on track. Here's your Back Talk Doc, Dr. Sanjeev Lakia. Welcome to another episode of Back Talk Doc. Today, I want to tackle for you a topic that doesn't get a ton of coverage in the world of spine care, but in my clinic, I am seeing more and more of it these days. And that is the idea of upper back pain or what we call thoracic back pain. We just recently did an episode on neck pain with Dr. Vermurray, my partner. And if you haven't heard that, please go ahead and download that and take a listen to it. We'll link to that in the show notes. And certainly, we've covered numerous aspects of low back pain from surgical angles to medications, nutrition, injections. And I kind of look at thoracic back pain, which is essentially, if you're not clinical, almost like from where your shoulders are to maybe just about six inches above your waistline. That, that's kind of our no man's land. But more and more people are having pain in this area. And I am delighted to bring my partner, Dr. Scott Otis, onto the show today to kind of pick his brain and help us figure out what is going on with the upper back pain and how to approach it. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Scott is a physiatrist with our group at Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, and his office is in our main location in Charlotte. And Scott, you joined the group is about five years ago now? Yeah, it'll be six in June. Six in June. Yes, fantastic. And Scott resides from my home state, which is the state of Ohio, where he did medical school at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. And then he does an internship at Riverside Hospital in Columbus and ultimately returned to Ohio State for his physical medicine and rehabilitation residency. First, I want to start by my condolences on the national championship game, Scott. It was a good fight and a great year. Just didn't turn out the way we want. Oh, you're right. I mean, we're just happy to be there. So uh, better luck next time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Scott is affiliated with the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab. He's also an expert in electrodiagnostic medicine. He does interventional spine care and really has just been a fantastic addition to our group and is a a pleasure to have as a partner. And I know he gets tremendous reviews from patients that go through our office. Talk to the listeners who don't really know you. Tell them a little bit about your path to physiatry and spine care. Go ahead and shed some light on how you got to work at our group. Yeah, so I completed my residency at Ohio State and went into private practice in Columbus, Ohio for 15 years, a kind of multi-specialty group with spine as well as orthopedic physicians. And so my practice was very similar there that it was pretty much non-surgical neck and low back pain with an emphasis on, on 
therapy and conservative measures, injections and EMGs. And so um, when we looked at better quality of life and, and better weather and, and working atmosphere, Charlotte was a uh, just a, a fantastic fit. And so we came down here about uh, almost six years ago. And we, we have been very pleased to be here. Yeah, fantastic. It definitely is. Charlotte, North Carolina is a fabulous place to live. And you know, the patient population in this area is great to work with, and there's no shortage of spine pain and spine problems. So it's, it's great to serve this community. As we talk about today's topic, which is thoracic back pain, give me a sense in your day-to-day clinic, your typical workday, let's say if you see 20 patients, what percent of the people coming in are having pain in that mid-back area? I would say that a large percentage of patients have some component of pain that is in that that mid-back thoracic area. I would say that of those, only a, a small percentage in my mind actually have primary issues related to that area. I see a lot of either compensatory issues from, from neck or low back issues or referral pain from neck and low back issues that present as thoracic spine pain, but it's relatively uncommon to have just a primary source of thoracic spine pain in my patients. When I hear that as a chief complaint, I do kind of sink back into my chair because I know it's going to be a challenge at times. And you mentioned to me as well when we talked about this topic for today that it can be challenging. What makes, from a physician lens, a physiatry lens, what makes working up thoracic back pain a little bit more challenging than cervical or lumbar discomfort? Well, I think when you look at true spinal pathology, you know, and when People think of that, they think of herniated discs and those types of things. That's rare. I mean, that's only about 1% of true herniations. So you're really looking at other sorts of pain in that region that are not discogenic in nature. And so, you know, it's a spectrum when I see patients to trying to find a, a true accurate diagnosis. And then once you can hopefully have that diagnosed, treat them appropriately. But it's it's hard for people who have musculoskeletal issues in that area because many times is a manifestation of something else going on in their life. Exactly. Now, you touched on a really good point. Thoracic disc herniations are not as common as they are in the low back and cervical spine. Now, I have people listen to this podcast. Some of them are potential patients or just average people looking to improve their health, and the others are clinicians who listen to our podcast. Are you able to explain to people why the incidence of herniated discs in the thoracic region is much lower than the other areas? I think it has to deal mostly with just the biomechanics of the spine and the fact that the neck and low back are are mobile sections and they have a a tremendous amount of stress to go through it through the course of a normal day, whereas the thoracic spine, it's bound by the ribs and so it's relatively immobile. So the amount of stress that goes through the disc is significantly less and so the incident of herniations is significantly less. All right. So someone comes in to see you and they say, Dr. Otis, I'm kind of having pain down between my shoulder blades or a little bit lower for the last three months. What's going on through your thought process in terms of how you want to evaluate that? Number one, let's talk about signs and symptoms of, you mentioned earlier, some referral sources of pain to the upper back that maybe isn't structural from the spine itself. So if you're talking about non-spinal issues causing thoracic spine pain, there are a variety of abnormalities involved in the chest and abdomen that can cause pain in between the shoulder blades. So so GI issues with people who have ulcers or reflux or hiatal hernias can cause pain in between the shoulder blades. People who have gallbladder disease 
liver disease, can have referred pain. People who have a variety of pulmonary and lung issues, heart issues, can all have pain in that region. Certainly different patient populations when it comes to cardiac issues don't necessarily present in your classic sign of chest pressure and, and left arm complaints. Some of them can present atypically with pain in between the shoulder blades. So those are all things that, as part of my assessment, we rule out those nasty medical type things and make sure this is truly a musculoskeletal issue. That's a great point. I actually sitting here thinking about someone I worked with who after a while, it turned out in retrospect, the pain in the upper back was from ischemic heart disease and they ended up getting cardiac stent placement and their five-year history of upper back pain went away almost immediately. So it was a, a good learning point. I think the take-home there is not all back pain is back pain. And you know, certainly this podcast is for informational purposes only. If you're experiencing upper back pain, please make sure you get a general medical evaluation before you try and treat yourself. So having said that, I think those are still pretty rare uh, and not super common to have someone come in my office who's having an acute event from a, you know, a GI issue, pulmonary or cardiac, and it's, it's upper back pain. What are some of the more common causes that you see of upper back pain? You know, I think that in today's world that we live in and doing so much in the way of desk and office work or with the advent of cell phones and people being more and more driven by that as far as our daily activities, we see a lot of white collar disease, as I call it. So you're sitting at a desk or computer for long periods of time with a desk that doesn't necessarily fit you right or ergonomically is not sound, your position of your neck and your shoulders are not optimal. If you're looking at a phone for extended periods of time, you're always in that chin tucked position with rounded shoulders. And so I see a lot of just muscular issues in between the shoulder blades just because of, of bad body posture and ergonomics. Yeah, no doubt. And I talked with Dr. Vermurray about the concept of tech neck, which I think it doesn't just affect the neck. It can affect the entire spinal axis just in the way that you detail. So that's that's exactly my observation as a common cause of upper back pain. Now, someone walks into your office, what is your typical algorithm for how you evaluate their complaints of upper back pain? Do you jump to an MRI right away? I don't. I mean, my first thing I always do is to get an adequate history. So I'm really trying to find out exactly where the pain is, what aggravates it. I'm looking to see what other signs and symptoms that they have because you know a lot of people who have just routine muscular pathology, I don't necessarily see in my office because people have been seen by their family doctors and have had you know at least basic physical therapy initiated or they've tried to make their own ergonomic changes. And so by the time that they see me, they, they've already kind of been through the normal gamut of, of workup. So I, I'm looking more for things that have been missed. Really for me, thoracic spine pain, I, I look heavily at the neck first just because there's so many structures in the neck that are going to cause pain in the shoulder blade region that have absolutely nothing to do with the shoulder blade area or the, the thoracic spine in of itself. That's a great point. So if you're listening out there and you have pain in the shoulder blade region and you come to see a physiatrist and we focus on your neck, it's not because we're not listening to where your complaint is. It's because it's extremely common to get referral pain from the cervical spine. In fact, I would tend to say that it's more common that that upper thoracic pain is more a cervical spine issue than it is a thoracic spine issue. Would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I've kind of lived through this myself. So I had a herniated disc 
in my neck several, several years ago, and I had no neck pain. All my pain was, you know, it was a knife sticking in my shoulder blade. And so we see discogenic pain very commonly for scapular pain. Uh, it's a very common referral pattern for joint-related issues in the neck and, and what are called facet joints. I agree that scapular pain for me is is neck until proven otherwise. No, exactly. So that's a great point. And I think a thorough assessment is, you know, we always like to say you look at a joint above and below. And in this area, I think you look at the spine region above and below as you're evaluating pain in the upper back. And you just touched a little bit on uh, the cervical facet joints and a, evaluation of those. Give us your thoughts on procedures for thoracic back pain. You know, we have done, I've done podcasts with Dr. Sumich on epidural steroid injections in general, and Dr. Vermeer touched a little bit on cervical ESIs, but what's your thoughts on procedures in the thoracic region, whether it's facet driven at the facet joints, discs, nerve roots? Do you do them as common, and what's kind of some of the differences that people should be aware of? Yeah, I would say that it's relatively rare for my personal patients to get thoracic injections. You know, when we look at the causes of pain and, and what are amendable to injections, like I said, only 1% or so of thoracic issues are disc-related. And so you just don't see a ton of people that true epidurals are helpful. Now, they're certainly there and there's exceptions and there are people who have herniated disc and pinched nerves and ridiculous pain for that, that the epidurals are very appropriate, but I just don't see a ton of that in my practice. For joint-related pain and, and arthritis facet-type issues, I think that's more common. But again, that's a rare patient that I send for those. And, and the fact that most people eventually do get better with physical therapy and with changes in biomechanics and the way that they do things. You know, I would say that there's probably more of an incidence of costochondritis-type injections. So people who get inflammation of the cartilage where the ribs meet either the sternum or the spine, that I, I would say there's probably more of an instance of me sending patients out for those injections than, than I do truly have for true spinal injections. You touched on a great point earlier that the thoracic spine is anchored on each side by the ribs. And I think that relationship limits the mobility in the facet joints and compression of the discs. And therefore, we will see much less degenerative changes in these areas and therefore have much fewer incidence of injections and procedures in the thoracic spine. So I totally agree with that. A couple of exceptions, though. I would say the thoracic area, I tend to see more of issues in terms of osteoporosis and vertebral body compression fractures. And then also, I observe for patients who have scoliosis that they can develop some more pathology in the thoracic spine just from the abnormal distribution of forces. Do you, do you see that in your clinic? Yeah, I do. I mean, scoliosis is a challenge because, as you pointed out, the way that the spine was meant to be used, it's it's not working that way. And so I, I think you can get a variety of musculoskeletal complaints because of overuse. And that can be a challenge because you can't fix scoliosis. So you're, you're basically trying to, to manage it despite their curvature. I think that the point regarding the compression fractures is, is an excellent one in the fact that we see that very commonly, particularly in our, our aging population particularly for women who are osteoporotic. And so we see those thoracic uh, compression fractures pretty frequently. And so when you look at treatment for that, you know, the, the mainstay of that for years has been you know, bracing for, for two to three months in, in the brace that basically goes from your sternum down to your pelvis. And it's 
it's a challenge to be in that brace for three months and tolerate that. And so the advent of kyphoplasty or vertebroplasty, which is injections of cement into the fracture, that has really, I think, improved the quality of life and the outcomes of those patients who have those fractures. And of course, you know, prevention is key when it comes to osteoporotic fractures. And uh, what are your some of your suggestions and strategies for, let's say we have you know, middle-aged female listening to this podcast and their mom had fractures and they don't want to obtain fractures in their upper back. What would be a few tips you could share that could help her prevent developing osteoporotic fractures? Yeah, so I think first thing I would recommend is just good medical care. And so there's certainly a familiar history with osteoporosis and, and for that. And so if you are particularly postmenopausal female who is white and is thin and has a family history of osteoporosis, you're at high risk. If you throw in other medical issues as far as thyroid or parathyroid disease, then I think that's something that women need to be actively treating themselves. And so they, they need to just have a, a good medical evaluation. DEXA scan is a very nice way of quantitating bone stock and if you're at risk for that. And then the DEXA scan really dictates how aggressive your family doctor would be with that. But any post-female, post-menopausal female should be on calcium and vitamin D supplementation. I think that they really want to be aggressive, having a good core program where they're working on, on core strengthening would be helpful. As we get older, you know, the biggest thing is fall risk. And, and so making sure that if need be, therapies uh, helping with balance and gait disturbances and decreasing those risks of falls. I would add to that resistance training. I always recommend that even lightweight resistance training with bands or weights, particularly for the arms and the wrists, humerus, and then weight-bearing activity. Walking in particular will help with the lower extremity as weight bearing and resistance builds bone density. So I get to ask that a lot. And you know, one thing to know is swimming will not build your bone density. It's a fabulous activity. And I have a lot of seniors who like to be in water therapy and swim. But I always advise them, you have to do something above and beyond that to help keep your bone density where it needs to be. So that's a big issue that I'm, I appreciate you touching on. Back to the thoracic back pain. We did touch a little bit about posture. What do you think about the role of physical therapy for thoracic back pain and what types of things can a patient expect a PT to look at? Yeah, I think it's, it's fantastic. And, and so I struggle with this as anybody. I have poor posture. I, I slouch. I have rounded shoulders. I'm at a computer all day. And so I could benefit from that as much as anybody. But I, I think the therapists are, are very well positioned to help patients with proper exercises to strengthen particularly the posterior aspects of, of the spine and the shoulder musculature. And so really working on the rhomboids and, and the muscles that retract the, the shoulder blades, the lats, looking at areas of tightness of the body that force the spine to be in an abnormal position. So shoulder contractions, hip contractures where you don't have full range of motion is going to put stress on areas that are remote that have to compensate for that. One of my favorite tools of all time is a foam roller. And I mentioned this on my top 10 holiday gift list for back pain. And if you haven't heard that podcast, we'll link to that in the show notes. But you can do a lot of these gentle kind of anti-gravity stretches on a foam roller where you would lay on it with your arms up or to your side and it'll stretch out your pec muscles. It can stretch out your psoas muscles. It's a fabulous tool. It's only 20 bucks. And I feel like almost everyone in the world needs to have one and know how to use it. 
If you suffer from any back discomfort, it's a great place to start working with a physical therapist. They can teach you some of these techniques to use, but a foam roller can be a, a fabulous tool. And you know, I'm the same way as you are, Scott, in terms of posture. Like even as we sit here and talk, as soon as you say it, I find myself sitting up better in my chair and reminding myself about my posture. And I'm actually still going through some physical therapy for my back as well. And I've been in it for a while. So we all have, I think everyone has a need to develop postural awareness, particularly with what you mentioned earlier, just we're in a modern computer society and everything's in front of us. And having a routine that allows you to reverse that curvature a little bit is going to help with your upper back pain. Now, some other things that I've seen beneficial through PT is dry needling for select trigger points, gentle massage. Some of the physical therapists will do banded exercises for what we call a scapulothoracic stabilization program. This is where he mentioned the rhomboids. Talking about just getting your shoulders retracted and pulled back a little bit so the alignment is better. So there's a take-home point there is there's a lot that can be done if you haven't met with a physical therapist and you're suffering. It's a great starting point. Now, let's say you know your patient has ongoing upper back pain. PT is not effective. You know, does that and injections, you know, trigger point shots, things like that aren't working. Is that an indication for surgery? Yeah, I think, you know, that's part of having an accurate diagnosis. So you would assume by that point, if they've failed traditional conservative measures, that they've had at least basic radiographic imaging. And so x-rays, I think, are quite helpful as far as looking at bony anatomy and things that are non-spinal in nature. And then obviously the MRI is key as far as looking at soft tissue with the spine and looking at disc issues and narrowing and spinal cord issues. I can tell you that, again, rarely is surgery required for thoracic issues. And when it is, it's a challenging surgery just because of gaining access to that area. And and with the lungs and the ribs, it's certainly a a much more technically skilled surgery than, than your traditional neck or low back surgeries. And that's a great point. In terms of surgery for the thoracic region, in my mind, a patient would have to have an obvious correlating finding on an MRI along with symptoms that match or some degree of a neurologic issue that can be explained by an MRI of the thoracic spine that can potentially be remedied by surgery. So it's extremely rare. Again, this is something that you want to have a conversation with a physician about who knows the signs and symptoms of thoracic disc issues, thoracic cord issues, and the like before you ever get entertained for surgery. So there you go. I think a take-home point here is that Dr. Otis has mentioned is a lot of pain in the upper back can be managed through self-care, can be managed through physical therapy. It's largely not an issue that is overly concerning for most unless you have some sort of referral pain. And it's extremely common. I would also add that the stress that we're under can also trigger some of the pain in these areas. So I think take-home points would be get your neck checked out as well because it can refer pain to that region. Get in with a good physical therapist. And as always, start with a physician who takes a great history. And he mentioned that several times, folks, and that's a sign of somebody who knows what he's doing and knows how to evaluate these sort of conditions. So I really appreciate you breaking down the topic of thoracic back pain for our listeners. As we close today, I want to just kind of pick your brain a little bit. I always like to hear a little more about the personal side of the docs that I work with and the colleagues that I work with. And what are some of your kind of personal health habits or health routines that you utilize on a day-to-day basis to stay sharp and stay in shape? I do two predominantly. So one is that we have two Westie puppies. 
who have lots of energy and need to burn that off. And so my, my wife and I do a lot of walks with them and we particularly like to go hiking up in the mountains with them. And it's a nice low impact way of getting some cardio. And then, you know, my wife has actually just recently bought a Peloton bike and I've gotten roped into a family challenge for that. And so that's been my cardio here for the last three, four months. And so uh, I've enjoyed getting back into some of the shape that I used to be in. Yeah, that's big. I think last time we talked about exercise, you didn't have anything formal. So I'm glad to hear that she's uh, pushing you in the in the right direction. <laughs> she's trying to help. Yeah. Any favorite books on health, life, or or otherwise that you want to share that are kind of on your Kindle or on your shelf? I was binge watching uh, some Netflix stuff with my daughter, so my reading has kind of fallen behind. But Admittedly, my, my bookshelf has been a little scant uh, lately. The most recent thing I've read was The Whiskey Advocate, trying to uh, prepare for hopefully a, a trip over to, to Ireland and, and uh, Scotland here when the COVID uh, allows us to do that. So I've been doing more research than I have actual um, true reading. Listen, I wanted your wellness tips and uh, learning about scotch. It makes you feel well. That qualifies in my mind. So <laughs> thanks for sharing that. All right, buddy. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, thanks for letting us pick your brain about a topic that doesn't get a lot of attention. It was great catching up with you. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Back Talk Doc, brought to you by Carolina Neurosurgery and Spine Associates, with offices in North and South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Lockia and treatment options for back issues, go to backtalkdoc.com. We look forward to having you join us for more insights about back pain and spine health on the next episode of Back Talk Doc. Additional information is also available at carolinaneurosurgery.com. <laughs>